a very wise man, uh, well known to all of us, said the incentive that impels a man to act is always some uneasiness. My act to prepare this presentation for you is no exception. Uh, my uneasiness stems from an apparent contradiction between my theoretical convictions as an Austrian economist and my practical beliefs as an investment manager. Specifically, in managing my client's money, I act as if I believed in the implications of efficient market theory. That means the possibility of stock picking and market timing. Although, as an Austrian economist, of course, I don't believe in efficient market theory. So in order to avoid uh, to suffer from schizophrenia, um, I decided to, to con reconsider and to explore as uh, rigorously as I can the implications of Austrian economics for investments in financial markets. So that's what I'm going to talk about. You can see it as a kind of group therapy. <laughs> so if you look at the Austrian literature, the answer is quite clear. Most Austrian economists support an active investment approach known as value investing. So what's the claim that value investors or fundamental analysts uh, do? They claim that some investors, always including themselves, of course, can systematically outperform the market by identifying temporarily undervalued securities. I could provide you lots of quotations expressing this view. I provide only one, which is has particular authority because it's from the Elgar Companion to Austrian Economics. So the investor qua entrepreneur has the ability to find temporarily undervalued stocks and to get out of overvalued investments. Why do Austrian economists support this view? If you look at the literature, there are basically two reasons. First of all, they reject the efficient markets theory, which is logical. Um, And it is this theory which implies basically that value investing is impossible, that you can't pick stocks with superior performance. And the second uh, reason for this view is that they transfer the concept of entrepreneurship that's central to Austrian economics from product to financial markets. So obviously, if entrepreneurs with their superior foresight can generate profits, why shouldn't be they able to do this in financial markets as well? Well, my view is that these arguments are not as strong as they appear to be. That doesn't mean that they're wrong, but they raise some questions at least. So first of all, uh, regarding the rejection of efficient markets, uh, we may agree that we don't believe in this theory, but that doesn't mean necessarily that the empirical phenomenon that this theory tries to explain is invalid as well, uh, which is the random walk phenomenon, the unpredictability of stock prices. If you look at the first Pharma paper in 1965... Uh, it doesn't contain any neoclassic economics. It's pure statistics. So my view on this, given this possible objection, is that uh, perhaps just re rejecting the neoclassical explanation is a bit too easy. I think what we should really do is to ask what are the implications of Austrian theory for the predictability of security prices. Now, regarding the second uh, argument, the entrepreneurship, there are two possible objections, I think. First of all, financial markets clear much faster than most product mar markets. Uh, Ludwig von Mises himself pointed out that the stock market clears every day. At least it, it, it reaches a temporary equilibrium, a plain state of rest every day. So if you want to benefit from this equilibrium, you have to be very quick. Uh, second of all, I would argue that not all, not all investors are entrepreneurs. So what we should 
ask ourselves as Austin economists, what informations are actually required for superior investment performance and who are actually the entrepreneurs in financial markets? And these questions are, I'm going to address now in the time that I have, have left. So uh, to start with, uh, we want to value securities, which are titles to future earnings by business, either ownership titles or credit titles. Uh, so the question we have to ask ourselves, what is actually the income accruing to a business and to what extent is it predictable and by whom? So according to Rothbard, there are four elements of income, interest, wages, rents and profit. But uh, I will focus on profits here because I, I believe without having time to argue the point that if you can predict profits, you can also predict the other elements. So in Austin's theory, we don't talk much about investors. The investors are actually called capitalists. And they are clearly distinguished from entrepreneurs. So capitalists, they provi provide financial capital to entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs transform financial capital into real capital. That means they combine capital goods with originary factors of production in order to produce and sell lower-order goods. So what is inseparable from the function of entrepreneurs is the direction of factors of production. So we actually have three cases. We have the pure capitalist on the one side, the pure entrepreneur, and we have the com combination that Austrians are very fond of, which is the owner-entrepreneur. Now, the income, uh, the capitalist earns interest, the entrepreneur earns a wage if managing the business involves some labor, then we have the earnings of ownership decision, and finally profit and loss. And so the important point I want to make here that the two functions are not the same. Capitalists provide capital to, capital to earn interest. Entrepreneurs employ capital to generate profits. So it's logically possible that they are the same, but it's also logically possible that they're not. So now we have to think a bit about who actually earns this profit. And there we have two cases. The capitalist can be either an owner, he can provide equity, or he's a lender, he provides debt. So let's look at the first case. First case. Uh, here we have the strange situation that one, the entrepreneur makes the decisions, but the other one, the capitalist bears the consequences, which is profit and loss. This is uh, perhaps not a very pleasant situation, but logically it's possible. That's the situation you find yourself in every time you pay a lawyer or your doctor. Because someone makes a decision, you bear the consequences. Uh, the other case, if uh, the capitalist is a lender, is even, is even weirder. Because here, the entrepreneur makes decisions which generate profits or losses. If everything goes well, if there are profits, the capitalist gets the interest, but the, the entrepreneur keeps the profit. If the prediction is not that good uh, and there's a loss, it's borne by the capitalist because... Uh, first, he won't get the interest that he expected, and if the loss is high, he won't even get the capital back. So this is a bad deal for the capitalist. He takes the risk, but the entrepreneur gets the profit. And this is actually the pure entrepreneur as he was described by von Mises. He does not own capital. He just borrows it. If he makes a profit, it's his. If he loses it, bad luck for the capitalist. So just exploring the theoretical implications of these two functions, entrepreneur and capitalist, leads to some paradoxical situations. I call them the equity paradox and the debt paradox. The equity paradox says that the pure entrepreneur makes decisions that affect only the owner. So he doesn't have an incentive, actually, to generate profits and avoid losses. The debt paradox says the pure lender assumes the risk of losses, but without the potential reward of profits. 
whereas the entrepreneur has actually an incentive to take excessive risks, a familiar, uh, phenomenon we were very familiar with recently. So how can we solve this? One possible answer, and that's the answer given by most Austrian economists, actually they have to be the same. They may be theoretically different, but in practice they have to be the same. Other things, wise things don't work. Uh, that's the concept, for example, of the integral entrepreneur uh, proposed by Professor Salerno, but you can, in all the writings you can certainly find this view. It is one solution, but I want to argue it's not the only one, for two reasons. First of all, it's logically possible, as we've seen, that they are separate. And also in practice, if you look at the complex corporate governance structures in real market economies, they are not always the same. Sometimes the functions are different. So the question is, is there any other solution? I would argue, yes, there's another solution, which is not identity of the two, but the partial sharing of the functions. So, Uh, by sharing the function, the capitalist tries to mitigate the serious incentive problems in the setup. And there are two ways to do this. Either he insists that the entrepreneur provides some of the capital himself, so the entrepreneur has to become a little bit like the capitalist, or the capitalist controls the entrepreneurial decisions. That means the capitalist gets involved somehow in the, in the, in the entrepreneurial decisions. So if we uh, take this into account... Every capitalist considering investment actually has to make two choices and has three options. First of all, this is always a bit slow. You have to deduct it from my time. Um, do I want to assume the entrepreneurial uh, function myself? So if I do this, then there's no, no problem, no need for control. I'm the integral entrepreneur that Austrians write about so much. And lots of them say it's the only one. But unfortunately, it's not the only one. There are many other cases. If I don't, as a capitalist, want to assume the entrepreneurial uh, function, the second question is, do I at least want to control the decisions? Do I want to control what this guy is actually doing with my money? Uh, if yes, then I become an inside investor. As a capitalist, I provide capital, and I control his decisions. If not, I'm an outside investor. I just uh, give the money and hope for the best. And I only rely that the entrepreneur has enough incentives to do a good job for me, Uh, either because he has an equity stake or he's motivated by his wage or his reputation. And what I can do, just diversify. Just pick 10 entrepreneurs and hope that some of them will do well. So what I'm proposing is that to see the full picture, we should actually add one function to the capitalist and the entrepreneur, which is something intermediate. I call it director now because that's what we see in, in large corporations. The director controls entrepreneurial decisions on behalf of capitalists. So why is that useful? If we now explore the logical combinations of these three basic functions, we get the full picture of the institutions of a modern market economy. So in the, in the center, we still have the integral owner-entrepreneur that we Austin's are so fond of, but it's just one case. We have now the pure director, which is a non-executive director. Then we have the combination of director and entrepreneur, which is the executive di director. Then we have the pure entrepreneur, which is basically a corporate manager without equity stake. That's hard to swallow for Austrians because the one guy we like, the other one we don't like so much, but they're, logically they're actually the same. Uh, capitalists and entrepreneurs would be a corporate manager with an equity stake. Now, capitalists who control entrepreneurial decisions would be inside investors. So it's either active owners, large shareholders, venture capitalists, private equity investors, 
or active lenders. That could be a, a bank giving a large corporate loan and appointing a representative to a corporate board. That was very common in Germany, for example. Or a hedge fund. They, they recently get into the lending business. Small. And then in the end, we have the pure capitalist, which is the outside investor, the passive owner, a preference shareholder, another small shareholder, a passive lender, a bondholder, or even a bank giving a small business loan just based on a, on a credit scoring. They don't deal at all with the management. They don't care what they decide. They just look at the data and give the credit. So why is this important? Um, you see that almost all of these functions we've identified, they're to some extent involved in entrepreneurial decisions. Either they make them or they control them. So I would define all these functions together which are involved in decisions, the entrepreneurial group. And the only function here that's not part of the entrepreneurial group are the outside investors. So you see that I think the Austrian literature that says, well, of course, the entrepreneurs, so they create profits, is uh, correct as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far because it's almost trivial to say, yes, if your capitalist is also an entrepreneur, then you can make entrepreneurial profits. What is really interesting, that's the question for me, the real question about value investing. Well, what about the other guys, the outside investors? How can they generate superior profits? Um, so this, I think we have to look at the entrepreneurial decision process to see actually what kind of information the outside investors have access to on which they can base their profit predictions. Uh, this is a bit... Uh, just take, pick one decision in, in, the, in, the, in the middle. All decisions concern either reactions to exogenous changes or creation of endogenous changes. So there's one decision, whatever it's yours, it's always based on an anticipation of future uncertain market conditions, and it applies a price and a profit prediction. Of course, that's private knowledge. So if this is confusing, everything that's blue is private knowledge, and only the red is public knowledge. And the key message here is that it's actually very little what is public knowledge or becomes public knowledge in the process. Because once the entrepreneurial decision is made by the entrepreneurial group, there's constantly new information arrive, and they can react. They can update their predictions. They can make new decisions. At the end, they have some result. They've seen whether, for example, the decision to enter a new market or to differentiate a product, whether this has worked out or not. Um, this is still not observable by outside investors because there are many decisions parallel and, and, and one after the other. The only thing that an outside investor can actually observe is then the overall result of all these decisions in a certain period as it's reflected in the financial statements. So that's why you see the red on the right side. And the other information an outside investor has access to is basically either exogenous changes that affect the company, yes, that's obvious to anyone, or uh, announced decisions by the entrepreneurial group. But this will all, always only a part of the information that will be announced with delay. So, to conclude... The current valuation of securities is always based on profit predictions. It reflects the current expectations of all market participants, including entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial group, that means inside investors, and outside investors who have only access to public information. So, as you've seen, there's a lot of information that's only accessible to private, uh, to inside investors, because one of the main reasons that they, they actually generate this information themselves. So they know 
what were the realized results of previous decisions they made. They have updated profit predictions for more recent decisions. Um, they know what are the most recent decisions they've taken that may not even be, be they have no results yet, but they know what, what they decided. They know what planned adjustments they, they have in mind to react to some recent exogenous changes. And they even know what are the next planned endogenous changes they want to introduce. So nobody else knows that. Uh, so compared to that, the public information that's available, available to outside investors is actually very, very little. So as we said, it's basically the cumulative results of decisions made in the past. So it's historical data. Uh, the public announcements of the entrepreneurial group. And finally, exogenous changes affecting the company. And I would argue that's actually the only source of potential profits for an outside investors are these exogenous changes. So if there's a war somewhere, the oil price goes up, and you're the first trader to buy energy stocks, and then 10,000 others, because that's their job, they do the same, and you sell the, the share at the end of the day, then you have a profit. But the problem is that the other 10,000 want to be the first as well. Um, of course, this kind of short-term trading profit is also possible for insiders. It's even, they have the additional chance to also trade before some of the changes they generate themselves are announced. That's classic insider trade. That's illegal, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So, but more importantly, only the members of the entrepreneurial group have actually all information required to at least try to predict long-term profits. And that's why they actually are in a position to do that. Compared to that, the information available to an outside investor is so limited that I would argue it's basically impossible. It's like tossing a coin. So my conclusion on this issue uh, is actually that um, the argument uh, of Austrian theory for the impossibility for outside investors to earn systematically superior returns is actually more convincing than the neoclassical. Um, the empirical hypothesis resulting from the theorem is actually quite similar. I argue that if you look carefully at the implications of Austrian economics, outside investors cannot earn systematically superior returns based on an analysis of publicly available information. This is actually very sim it's the same as the neoclassical, the semi-strong semi form of the random walk theory. But the explanation is very different. In neoclassical theory, it's this thing that we, we, of course, we don't believe, that market price is efficient and all information is included. No. The, the Austrian explanation is that information, most of the relevant information is actually private to the entre entrepreneurial group. It's dispersed. And if there's really a company with low valuation, the only thing that valuation will go up are future entrepreneurial decisions, which as actions are inherently unpredictable. Uh, the hypothesis on outs inside investors is again similar. Uh, based on Austin's theory, I would say, of course, insiders, they can generate superior profits trading in their own securities. And that's also admitted by the leading exponents of efficient market theory. Of course, there's the possibility of always of gaining ins from inside information. But again, the, the explanation is different. All that neoclassical economy can say, well, there must be some monopolistic access to information. But Austrians, they can say much more. Actually, it's not only access to some given information. The entrepreneurs are generating the information themselves. So to conclude, I think the Austrian argument against the possi uh, possibility for outside investors to generate systematically superior returns is actually stronger than the neoclassical because it's based on realistic assumptions about dispersed information. 
and not on unrealistic assumptions about market efficiency.